When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In the 60s and into the 70s, there was an explosion in the British pop music business as the Beatles broke up and bands such as the Rolling Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin and many others rose to prominence. It was the start of a cultural revolution that continued over the next few decades. Live music audiences got more demanding and wanted to see concerts that were dramatic and spectacular. This is the story of how, as the music industry evolved, artists and bands took to the road to tour the UK, Europe and America to satisfy those demands, as told by some of the people that made it happen. The worlds of theatre and television collided, and in the vanguard was a small group of people in a London company that helped pioneer rock and roll lighting and visual production. Welcome to your very own Backstage Pass. Hello, my name is Chris Smith and I'm here to welcome you with your Backstage Pass to the second part of our journey to when the staging and visual presentation of rock and roll shows came of age. I was there working with a London production company, ESP Lighting, who were pioneers in the 70s in the development of how bands and artists performing at increasingly larger venues looked on stage. This is your personal backstage pass into that era, and we hear from some of those who were there and made it happen and were a major part of this important chapter in the history of the music business, such as Jimmy Barnett, who worked with many of the biggest bands of all time. summer morning in the south of France when I, when I jumped on a bus, but this was no ordinary bus. This was a psychedelically painted open-top double-decker bus, and, and I was on there with Paul and Linda McCartney and, and their band, Wings, the new band Wings, to go with the roadie sound guys and the lighting crew, and, and we were heading from Nice in the south of France to Chateau Vallon, where there's a little Roman amphitheatre-type venue. But the bus was probably built in the 1950s or 60s. It was really uncomfortable. It didn't have air conditioning. 
and the top speed of just 32 miles an hour. So the journey from Nice to Chateau Vallon, which should have taken maybe two and a half hours, took about six. So, you know, I found my way upstairs after realising the open top deck was probably the best place to stay cool on this hot day and, and so did Paul. So sitting up there was when we started to chat. And, and because he'd lost some of his sort of Beatles luster, if you like, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was talking to a megastar, it was just a sort of proper chat with a normal person. Much of the conversation centered around the Beatles, of course, the craziness of the live shows and what, what I now, you know, with the wisdom of age might call the trauma for him of the band's breakup. Uh, you know, I think he'd probably been bullied a bit by, by John and some of the others about Alan Klein, and um, he, would, he, he really distrusted Alan Klein and was keen for his, his father-in-law, who was a New York lawyer, Lee Eastman, to, to help out. But anyways, th with, with all this going on, I think he was quite isolated, and I think he was happy to tell me his side of the story without being vilified. But we're jumping ahead of ourselves in this story of how, after the breakup of the Beatles, the worlds of theatre and television collided and rock and roll lighting and production developed. The story starts in 1968 when 18-year-old John Brown, who had trained to work in theatre lighting, joined Brian Croft, the former technical director of the UK's National Youth Theatre, to work at the Institute of Contemporary Arts on the Mall in London. During 1968, the ICA started to put on a series of concerts. At one of those concerts, an American band arrived called the Chambers Brothers, and it came with the Joshua Light Show and a very interesting and charismatic man called Chip Monk, who was their lighting director. Chip went on to global fame as the voice of Woodstock. Uh, to get back to the, uh, the warning that I've received, you may take it with how many however many grains of salt you wish, that the brown acid that is circulating around us is not specifically too good. Uh, it's suggested that you do stay away from that. Of course, it's your own trip, that would be my guess, but uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one. What he did was opened up both brown and my eyes to the potential of leveraging our knowledge of theatre lighting into the world of lighting music productions. The ICA primarily, it was originally a, a gallery for, for, for art, which was hung on the wall in the conventional way. But the then director, Michael Custo, wanted to have a performance space. So we built a small performance space, probably seating 400 people, where we put on concerts. It was, it was an experimental space. So I remember that we had the band Nice, and then each member of Nice played a solo session. Uh, and we had Julie Driscoll and Brian Auger, who were very big at the time, and various other bands, including probably the most famous, uh, Country Joe and the Fish. Brian got a call from Chip Monk saying that the Rolling Stones were coming back to London after the end of their 1969 American tour and that he was going to be doing their lighting, which he'd been doing on the American tour. And this was the tour that 
culminated in Altamont, so which was of course an extremely bad experience for all involved. And and the word was that the Stones wanted to come back to London and play a couple of gigs to sort of settle their nerves. These were the early days of touring, and of course Chip didn't get the paperwork right for the shipping of his lights from America. So we were enlisted uh, as first of all as crew, and then ultimately to go and rent all the lights from Theatre Projects and to rig both the Lyceum and the Savile Theatre for uh, one-night concerts on alternative weekends. Roy Lamb joined us, so Brian, I and Roy Lamb became crew for those concerts, and that was the, the very first performance that we were involved in lighting. Roy Lamb, the man that John spoke of, had left school planning to go to university, but had met Brian Croft as John had at the National Youth Theatre, an amateur but highly regarded theatre company for young people, who at the time staged productions in London, which is where Roy started to learn his trade. We put together a theatrical lighting rig for those shows. I stayed far away from the rock and roll side of it, stayed uh, as a technician, and we would just spend long hours, as we would in the theatre, setting up everything and taking it down and moving it to the next venue. I mean, we survived quite well on those on those first two weeks, and it was really thrown in the deep end, making up as we go along, which we did pretty well through the seven, early 70s as well, once we started touring with the stuff. We're now speaking of... Uh, at spring 1970, the Stones lighting equipment finally made it into England and we tested it uh, with a Crosby Stills National Young show at the Albert Hall. And then the tour started, uh, the European tour, Stones European tour started in August 1970 with the American rig. The third person, in addition to John Brown and Roy Lamb, whose name you may have already heard, was Brian Croft and he played a pivotal role in those early days. Brian takes up the story of how he became involved in the 1970 Rolling Stones tour. At that time, I was in a perfect job. Technical director there at the ICA was great for me because I was equally interested in art and um, theatre. And uh, it was a perfect job for me. I was extremely happy. And yet I ran away with the circus. And I'm not quite sure why, except that Chipmunk was a very charismatic person. A few months later, I was invited to a major Rolling Stones tour of Europe. And I'm graciously given permission by the ICA to take three months unpaid holiday in order to do this tour. This this tour was a kind of landmark tour. There was this massive aluminium structure which held the lights and the uh, some drapes, etc., but didn't have any rain cover. And we did do some outdoor gigs. You know, I was asked to put together four Europeans, Brits, to add 
to something like a six-man lighting crew from that had come with him from Woodstock. That was a massive crew. I mean, unbelievable at that time. And um, it was because he needed seven English-speaking follow-spot operators in order to operate at all. And he was right, because Europeans tended not to speak English at that time, very fluently anyway. So that was determined that even with this huge crew, it, this was a massively cumbersome show. It took way, way, way too long to assemble and disassemble, and it did not it fit into the time frame of the tour at all. And we just condensed everything down. We were flying commercial, which limited how soon we could get there, but we were tending, even with a day off between shows, for the trucks to get there, we were tending to go in as early as we possibly could. As soon as we got there, we to the we would shower, go to the gig. Hopefully there was no show on and we would go in in the evening before the show, work all the way through, operate the show, pull it out. So you're maybe 36 hours in there. And of course, the what suffered was sleep. And this is the first thing I learned, which is the pressure not to sleep stayed with me for the whole of my touring days. Running on adrenaline is not healthy and people start to make mistakes. This solution, of course, and we didn't have it then, was these fabulous luxury sleeper buses for the crew. They, they didn't come about for several years later and were with proper bunks and fast professional drivers and you could get from show to show as quickly as the trucks could and have had maybe six or seven hours sleep. Roy Lamb was also involved in that tour too. Scandinavian shows were in football stadiums and I would, I'm guessing that we must have had 30, 40, 50,000 people at the football stadiums. The rest of the shows through Europe in Germany and France and places like that and Italy were indoor arenas that they were all pretty well sold out. So it would have been 10,000 plus people at every venue. We travelled around in a bus, not a sleeper bus, a regular bus that slept on the floor. I would say there were probably... A dozen or 14 of us travelling around on the whole tour, plus locals, 30 or 40 locals to help us out every day. In fact, on the um, the indoor shows, we, we were, well, on all the shows, really, we started work early morning on the day of show, 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning, to be ready for mid-afternoon. Never did a sound check. The band never did sound check. So we, we had the whole day to set everything up. And the shows have gradually got bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, stopping at the end of the 70s, they still had not got anything like to the level that they uh, that they um, got to in the 80s and 90s, there were no there was no video in the 70s. The lighting rigs were fairly small, and there was very minimal, call it production, stage sets, etc. People didn't start carrying big scenery around until the later in the 70s. We only had some back rear curtains and a truss that uh, ground support truss that went behind the band to hold the lamps and the drapes up the company that did the security of the tour had a couple of had got together two trucks and we put everything in those two trucks in fact we had two trucks of lighting slash staging equipment a very small van with all the rolling stones back line in it that was driven by ian stewart the roadie and a very small truck with a pa in it was driven by the guys from wem that did the pa for the tour the only, the only people that really carried anything very much in the 70s were the Pink Floyd. We did the uh, 74 Dark Side of the Moon tour in Europe where they carried cherry pickers and a huge circular 
the screen behind the stage with all the Gerald Scoff uh, graphics on it, and that was probably the most complicated uh, physical production that happened in the early 70s. Here's Brian Croft again. Anyway, the RCA was, unfortunately, was running out of money. We had done these fabulous things, you know, big, very big exhibitions, cutting-edge stuff, modern technology exhibitions, multimedia stuff. And we didn't have that kind of commercial sponsorship and uh, that exists and those fundraising techniques which exist now. So we were reliant on public money. And of course, in the end, it ran out. Michael Cousteau, the artistic director, quit. And very soon after, so did I and uh, and John Brown. And I did the only thing I could. I went back into the theatre. And luckily, my alma mater, which was the National Youth Theatre, had a uh, been gifted this brand new theatre by Camden Council, very enlightened at that point, gave the um, the running of this brand new theatre in the Euston Road called The Shore. And in the transition of me leaving the ICA and going to The Shore, I managed to squeeze in a short UK tour of the Stones, which actually, considering it was chip, it was very well controlled, budget-wise, etc., because the band had insisted on a maximum of one pound ticket, which was cheap even in those, and therefore there was a definitive budget, and we put the whole show, sound, lights, backline, everything, into a 16-ton truck driven by the driver of the Rolling Stones mobile studio. We did half a dozen really good gigs, you know, Glasgow Greens Playhouse, Newcastle City Hall, finishing at the Roundhouse. When John had left, when we'd all left the ICA, John and I decided to set ESP as a limited company. And John got himself a premises down in the Wandsworth Road and he hustled for work. We had begun to get a bit known around the music scene as being people who were involved in lighting for rock and roll. And Brian had gone back to the National Youth Theatre at the Shaw Theatre as technical director. Opportunities to actually freelance on various tours turned up. So in 1972, I worked as uh, the lighting director on the Andy Williams European tour. Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free while God is marching on. Glory, glory,
these were tours with where you travelled without lights and you just did the best with the equipment that was in the theatre, Enormous, normally rather disastrously, where the skills needed to do that were actually one of a linguist rather than a lighting director. We were doing the opening gala for the 1972 Olympic Games in uh, Germany, the ones that ended so badly. And uh, at the end of the show, at the end of one of... Andy Williams is rousing patriotic songs. There is a call for a blackout. But of course, the electrician not only blacked out all the lights, he blacked out all the power to the stage. So instead of it ending on a very great crescendo, all the equipment just went. We set up ESP lighting. I still continued to do some freelance work. I did Alice Cooper in a European tour and then Led Zeppelin and The Who in America, which was really rather quite exciting. If you could talk to me, what news would you bring of voices in the sky? At the end of 1972, we were approached by Peter Jackson, who's the manager of the Moody Blues, who said he wanted lighting for the band in Europe, because evidently they had lighting in America, but hadn't toured with lighting. And that was the, the true beginning of ESP lighting as a trading operation. And the very first concert was on the 27th of February 1972 at Liverpool University with the Moody Blues. And we used as equipment the Rolling Stones small UK touring ring uh, that Chip had put together for that Stone store in 71. And in fact, that was the, the backbone of our equipment for our early tours. Early 1973, the Stones rolled back into my life again. I got a call. Would I like to do a Nicaragua earthquake benefit gig in Los Angeles, followed by a tour of Japan, New Zealand and Australia? Pretty hard to say no, actually. So here we go. I flew to New York, refueling at Shannon and Gander. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Couldn't make it one hop. Fuel, fuel touchdowns. Anyway, I get picked up in this very dodgy limo and taken straight out to Yonkers, where we are sort of scrambling a lighting rig and a set together for this tour. After 48 hours straight, I am persuaded to drive the crew minibus back to Chip's house in the mid-30s east side. Uh, I know that I'm being tested by the Woodstock. So I've never been to America, and I've never been in charge of an automatic vehicle with the steering wheel on the wrong side. And I'm going through nighttime Manhattan, and this was a bit stressful, and it was a test. We finally made it to Los Angeles with one day to spare to assemble all this stuff that we'd been sending down ad hoc as a sort of commercial air freight in bits and pieces and we did all this in a small film studio before heading into the forum the next day uh, bianca jagger uh, was of course nicaraguan and the promoter who was the great bill Burke, god bless him uh, he was carlos santana's manager it was a triumphant 
and it raised a million dollars as a hundred hundred dollar ticket. I think. So next stop, Hawaii in Honolulu, which were great shows. And um, then we hit this enormous hiatus, which is that the band, or Mick, uh, I think, had been declined for his Japanese visa. And we suddenly had to rejig the entire tour on a budget of only the Australia-New Zealand income uh, without the big chunk of it from Japan. So this meant a lot of very serious thinking. Uh, while I was swanning about, <laughs> getting uh, very frustrated and wet in Australia, John was hustling work and was doing very well. He had some major acts because we were the only uh, show in town at that point. And as pioneers, of course, you get the commercial advantage. He was doing The Who, Led Zeppelin, Elton John. This tour of in the Pacific wasn't that long. And uh, because of the build-up of all this work, John was continually pleading with me to come down to Wandsworth Road and join him as management. You know, he would be businessman, the, 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 what you call a CEO these days, and CFO, more importantly, financial officer, because he knew about money. We had a serious talk, and I said, hand on heart, John, tell me, when you think that we will make enough money to guarantee an annual salary for me, and I'll think about it. Well, hand on heart, that call came in May 73, and I handed in my notice at the, the shore. So Brian moved on from what had been essentially a lifetime of working in conventional theatre to become fully involved in the rock and roll lighting and production business. It was a decision that he was never to regret. And over the next several decades, it saw him working with some of the biggest bands and on some of the biggest musical events in history. A life that he loved. Roy Lamb was the same. If I could do it all again, I don't think I'd change anything. We had a whole camaraderie of of guys on the road, very different from the sex and drugs and rock and roll side, I've got to say that, but certainly from most of our perspectives. Wherever the artist decides to play, our little band would cobble it together to the best way we possibly could, and it was fascinatingly interesting during the earlier days, particularly when no one had ever done it before, and we made it up as we went along. As ESP gets on the road, it's time for us to part until the next time, when you'll hear more about some of the biggest names in the music business. Literally hold up a mirror to the Rolling Stones, get called into action by ABBA to work on the band's first live shows in the UK, and hear what the crew really thought of working with Queen. And lots, lots more. Backstage Pass is a podcast miniseries produced by Chris Smith and Christian Swain, edited by Jerry Danielson, and is a joint production with Pantheon Podcasts, the home for music lovers. We look forward to having you back on our journey. Until then, remember to keep the lights on. (laughs) 